James Baldwin once wrote, an artist is a sort of emotional or spiritual historian. His role is to make you realize the doom and glory of knowing who you are and what you are. Well, my guest today on the program does just that. He's been around for a long time, and talking to him, one gets the feeling he's seen it all. He's busked on the streets, played Letterman, had a huge evergreen hit, had a hit sung by someone else, played all over the world, and counted among his friends everyone from Jeffrey Lee Pierce of the Gun Club to Harry Dean Stanton. He's been in punk bands, and he's been a one-man band armed with nothing but an acoustic guitar. So yeah, my guest today on the program is an emotional and spiritual historian, for sure. But he also happens to be one of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time. And speaking of time, it's time to meet him. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Have you ever been in trouble? Do you remember how it feels? Are you living in a bubble Caught between the wheels Tonight you feel the danger Rising on the wind Tearing out your jacket Ripping at your skin Have you ever been in trouble You slip by somehow Have you ever been in trouble? The kind you're in right now That is the music of my guest today on the program, Peter Case. Let me tell you a little bit about Peter Case. Ever since he landed in San Francisco at 19, the Buffalo-born Peter Case pretty much hasn't stopped making music. He initially hit the Bay Area as a busker, and from there, he joined pals Jack Lee and Paul Collins to form the punk band The Nerves. After The Nerves called it a day, Case formed The Plimsolls, who put out a handful of albums that were instant classics. When The Plimsolls broke up, Case stripped things back and put out his first solo album. The self-titled record was a critical favorite, and it kick-started a solo career that has found the singer-songwriter releasing close to 20 albums, including titles like The Man with the Blue Postmodern Fragmented Neo-Traditionalist Guitar, Sings Like Hell, and his new one, Dr. Moan. The Grammy-nominated case is a true troubadour whose life has been devoted to song. He's put out several books, including As Far As You Can Get Without a Passport, which, by the way, is fantastic. He's had his songs covered by everyone from Blondie to Joe Ely to John Prine. He's opened for the Ramones and John Lee Hooker, collaborated with Los Lobos, Roger McGuinn of the Birds, and Ry Cooter. And you know what? The list goes on and on and on. This is just a fragment of what Peter Case has done. In other words, his CV, well, it has a lot of pages. His new album, Dr. Moan, is a stirring song cycle that's powered by Case behind the keys of an acoustic piano. And, spoiler alert, it's riveting work. The songs are heartfelt, arresting, and filled with raw finesse that makes every moment immediate and engaging. And, conveniently enough, immediate and engaging is exactly how I'd classify this conversation. So here we go, me and Peter Case, having a chat, right here. On Stereo Embers, the podcast. played over in uh, Berkeley, and I've played up in uh, Mill Valley, but I haven't played in the city since I played, uh, I guess it was 2019, I played at the, what's that place, Hotel Utah. I love that room. Me too, it's a weird room. I can't put my finger on what makes it such a weird place. It's such a weird place because it's weird to try to reach all the different people there. Sometimes it's good to go out into the audience and sing into the different areas, you know. It's a crazy little cozy little gig that's kooky, you know. But I like it. Do you know that story where evidently 
Mark Heitzel with American Music Club, like they were playing the Hotel Utah sometime in the 80s. And he was so overcome with emotion or I don't know what was going on. He literally just walked off the stage after a song, walked out the front door and, and into the night and didn't come back. I know. I was there that night. I, I opened up that. Sh- I was at. I was playing that night in that room with a drummer, and I was just playing piano. And I don't know if it was an opening act or if we were just goofing around or what. But I was hanging around with those guys back then. I was producing Flophouse. Oh yeah. And I, yeah. And I was and I was playing at the Sacred Grounds a lot up on uh, was it like Oak or something? And uh, we had some great shows up there. I still was walking out of a lot of places back then. He was going through a tough time. But uh, we all go through those times. Oh, I remember Flophouse. Wasn't that J.C. Hopkins' band? Yeah. yeah. He's doing great. He's out in New York. Well, you know, I saw you open for Bob Mould at the Fillmore in San Francisco in 89, I think. Um, and then later on, you opened for John Lee Hooker. You're sort of a musical shapeshifter. Did you ever think of yourself in those terms? You know, I never thought of it. I love music, and, and I grew up... When I started loving music, it was before... There were a lot of clearly described labels and people talking about it. It was like my big sisters were teenagers during the Elvis 50s, you know. And so I was a little baby, you know, and they were taking care of me. And they were into jazz, and my sister played stride piano, but then she was into Fats Domino, and she was also into, they were both into Elvis, and I grew up with that in the house. And then we had, but we also loved, you know, Harry Belafonte, and we loved, we had, my mom had Ella Fitzgerald, you know, records, she'd listen to and, you know, just all kinds of stuff. So um, Ray Charles was in the house, you know, musically on records, but so was, so this was all what I got into, you know, Kingston Trio. So I just love, and classical music, you know, uh, you know, and then crazy kid stuff like Hall of the Mountain King and all that kind of stuff. So I grew up, and by the time I started playing in garage bands around 65, you know, I was really focused on that, but I loved all that music. Did Credence make a huge impression on you? Because it seems like they did. Yes. I loved Credence, and I hung around with a lot of older hippies at that time in the, in 68, 69, and they used to put down Credence for being like a teeny bopper group. Like, what's with you, man? You're like, you had good musical taste, but you like Credence? i like, Credence is great, man. And I, like, Born on the Bayou, you know, that that whole album just like kills me. Been the one after it, too, you know, uh, Green River. Those are, they're a great, great group. Um, of course, you know, I love them, yeah. You know, the thing for me about Credence is that you listen to them and you can't really place them on a timeline. I mean, the music could have been made in 1967 or it could have been made yesterday. Yeah, their songs are really high level. And so is their performance. So, yeah, you know, they are very, uh, they're classically great. You know, there's just no bull, bull with it. You know, it's all high level. Everything they put on the records was just like, you know, the, the best. So, you know, the singles, of course, were the best thing about Credence. But the album, the Green River album has great stuff on it, too, like Commotion and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were super good, you know, Cross Tie Walker and all that. I love those guys, you know, I really do. You know, for me, the Plimsolls were like the 80s version of Credence. And I listen to the Plimsolls albums now, and just like Credence, I can't date them. They sound like they elude the timeline. Yeah, the songs and stuff, you know, maybe the recording. But, you know, um, the, if I listen to those live Plimsolls records that are available, yeah, I definitely get that feeling. I love the one called Beachtown Confidential on a live record. So that, that's a live show from, uh, I guess, 83. And mm. there's another live show from like 81 or 82 from the Whiskey A Go-Go. And both of those have that character. Yeah, I, I, we, I always... You know, I used to read, I remember reading stuff about how rock and roll was supposed to be disposable and all this kind of stuff, but I, I know Buddy Holly wasn't feeling like he was disposable when he was doing uh, his records. You know, it's not, rock and roll's not disposable, it's for all time, man. Rock and roll lives, man. So, <laughs> you know, uh, music, you know, it's not just for one, you know, mood or one moment, you know. Uh, that whole disposable culture thing is some sort of evil bullshit that uh, was put, you know, put up there by the... I don't know, postmodern, you know, theorists or something. I don't know what it was, really. Maybe I got that all wrong. But uh, the great stuff, you have to penetrate to a place that comes from a pretty deep place and, you know, put it out, you know. It's hard, though, because there's so much crap in the culture. And so it's harder and harder for young musicians to find their own ground. You know? Yeah, and even though, like, you know, sometimes it's just because it's, you know, it comes down to, like, time and a place. 
still, a lot of the music is disposable. 99.9% .9 of it's disposable before you even, you know, listen all the way through. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, uh, not to be put too fine a point on it. but Yeah, yeah right. right. So, so what, what is the stuff that lasts? What is the stuff that endures? I don't know. I mean, finally, like, don't, don't, and there's not much that's going to really endure, probably. I don't know. What do we mean by endure? But, uh, you know, it's hard to say, like, 100 years or 50 years. We've already had 60, 70 years of rock and roll. So, what's, you know, Elvis's star is fading a little bit, but he still sounds great to me. But, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. The Beatles seem to, like, you know, keep their... You know, I th there's certain things that hit the zeitgeist and stuff. I, I can't tr really worry about that kind of stuff too much because it's so we're so powerless over it. You know what I mean? I just try to do my best work. I see fifth graders wearing ACDC shirts, so I mean, I guess they're still enduring. At least the shirts are. Yeah. I mean, I guess you know, they probably like the group. I mean, you know, any group that like uh, puts forth like a real tough kind of masculinity with a lot of fun involved in it. It's going to be big with little boys because they, uh, you know, they need an example of somebody that to look up to, to grow up to. I, I never would, I never looked up to stuff like that when I was little. I looked up to uh, different people, but, um, you know. Do you think in certain ways that songwriting is like an unmasterable art? I don't know about that. Uh, I never thought about it like that. I think making things perfect is uh, impossible. And uh, I think you can get as good at songwriting as people. You know, people were at, get good at drawing or get good at painting or get good at, uh, you know, translating languages or whatever. You know, I think that you can, uh, I think you can get an attitude to it that, that um, helps, helps you to get closer to it. So I don't think it's uh, on map. I don't, I don't, I would, I don't know, you know, uh, I don't know, but I, I don't, I do think that you can, uh, you know, if you pay attention to it and you try to really break through it, you can really do great things. But that's what I think. Um, you know, I don't really know what it would mean for something to be unmasterable. Um, I know you can't make it perfect. I guess that's my first answer and my last answer. Yeah, but like if you wrote a song like Blackbird and then you were like, well, I guess I'm going to stop there. Uh, people, people might think, uh, well, that's a pretty great song. Uh, I can understand why you might feel you've accomplished all you need to accomplish, you know, in in songwriting you can you can stop there that's a safe place to stop you've you've done it i i don't understand that because like you know that's not how things work you know like you you only write a song like blackbird because you have a constant you're tapped into something that makes you want to write and makes you want to create songs so it's just a uh you know it's not like the greatest song I've ever written or anything so yeah. uh, you know so you know, it's a beautiful song, and then you just keep going. That you're you're a person like Punkartney that makes beautiful songs, and you're gonna make another one tomorrow. You know, that's that's more like what it's like. You know, um, you don't think because it would make you unhappy just to quit. You know, and leave a, you know, leave a thing like that. You know, you, what makes me happy is writing songs because I'm a songwriter and singer. You know, I'm a singer really, and so like I love to sing. I write songs to sing them. And uh, I need stuff to sing, and I want I want the new thing, you know. I, I want to, you know, I want to have new things to pour my soul into. You know, I don't really think about quitting because I've, you know, I, I mean, I've never achieved anything any other that would enable me to just quit. But I can, you know, I think you see these people like Bob Dylan or uh, Paul McCartney. You know, they go, they go on and on and on. They love what they do. You know, it's not, you know, I guess you don't stop because you know, and the blues singers too. You know, Lightning Hopkins never gave it up or. But I mean, you can't, you know, if you're just an American living on American uh, in the American economy, you know, or the Western economy, or whatever, you know, um, you know, you can't really uh, give things up. You know, you have to keep rowing that boat, keep on rowing. What is your own uh, personal discipline? Are you are you one of those guys who's always practicing? No, I'm always doing something though. Um, yeah, I guess I am always like keeping my voice in shape, and I, I learn new things all the time. And uh, I'm always trying to learn new things. I'm always listening to music and um, trying to. Ch yeah, I guess I am always. I mean, I don't really call it practicing so much. I mean, I don't sit there and practice scales or anything, but I'm always trying to find wavelengths to get on where I feel inspired to play. You know, and uh, lately I've been playing. I've always played harmonic ever since I was a little kid, but I've been playing that a lot at home. And um, you know. Um, I play, you know, I've been playing guitar, and you know, I, I, on this pandemic, I played piano a lot. I played every day, and uh, 
you know, I, I don't know, you know. I mean, everything to me feels like, you know, you take everything's a lesson, you know, when you listen to music, you know, and you listen, you know, and you try to figure it out, you know, what's going on with it. You, you, you find out uh, things you didn't know. Uh, you, you just keep unraveling the mysteries of music. It seems that the pandemic helped you create this kind of relationship with the piano that hadn't really existed at that on that level with you before, right? Yeah, not at that level. Have you heard that album? Yeah, it's remarkable. Oh, good. Thank you. You know, because, yeah, it, it was uh, a choice, you know. I was hanging out here, and I just started playing piano every day. I was supposed to go on tour around the world, but instead I stayed in my living room for like you did, and the yeah. rest of us did, and, and uh, played every day. You know, when I got up, I'd have a cup of coffee and just start playing piano. And eventually, you know, I started out just learning learning stuff. I was learning some, you know, basic, you know, things by Jimmy Yancey, and I tried to learn a monk thing, and I was on decoding a few, you know, gut bucket versions of jazz arrangements and stuff, you know. And then, because uh, I'm not really a jazz player, but but the song started to come, you know, from that, from playing every day. It was great to have all that time to hang out and just play piano. Really, I mean, um, I was going to make a lot of money on the road, but I guess it was in a way it was more exciting to just stay home. I mean, I I know that the world went through a conniption fit and we're screwed after that and everything, but um, the world's nuts. But I, I was fortunate that I have music. Music's like such a huge gift, man, you know, and to be part of music is such a huge gift, you know, when I got sick and I had a heart operation and all these people came out and helped me out, man, you know, because they give, they love music, you know, and they love you because you've been associated with music, you know, and um, it's also a great gift, it's, you know, it's like Jerry Garcia, you know, said, uh, music contains infinite optimism, there's always, you know, you're never wasting your time if you're playing music, Jerry said, and I really... And, and, and there's always room for more music, you know, and stuff like that. And I think that that was a very beautiful thing to say because music does contain infinite optimism. And so even in the darkest times, there's uh, music. And then you can share that with people. It's a huge gift. And then people, uh, you know, share it with each other. So, um, you know, it's a good thing. In terms of your the biggest attitude shift for you after the heart situation, what what was it for you? What what changed in terms of your approach after that? Oh, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of unspeakable, really. Uh, the whole thing was so intense. Um, you know, I can't I can't really put a finger on it. Um, things did change, though. But you know, I it went I went to a really deep place during that week that, you know, I really had to, I really faced that I might die, you know, and uh, it made me think about the people that were there for me, like my wife, Denise, and like my, my kids and stuff, and so I just really, you know, and then I did think about music. When I came out of the um, surgery, I couldn't uh, stand anything. I couldn't stand uh, cowboy movies, gun violence movies, mm. war movies. I couldn't even stand like real slam and rock and roll records. I was listening to uh, Silent Way by Miles Davis and uh, um, New Morning by Bob Dylan. Yeah, I listened to a few of these records that had like a kind of a spiritual sort of upbeat vibe. I couldn't stand the, um, the uh, I couldn't take it, you know. And then I started playing these really weird chords, you know, uh, on the piano. And uh, this was way back then, and I was hanging out playing a little bit then. But that was a weird period, you know. I went through a lot of changes. It definitely put me through some cycles changes but i can't it's hard to put your finger on it did you find that you could recover your um you could watch cowboy movies again <laughs> or did you, oh yeah did you... yeah yeah totally yeah eventually you know but yeah i have an understanding about that though you know um i couldn't stand to see people get shot and like what it did to your organs and thinking about it you know after what i'd been through i was cut open from here to here you know and so uh you know i felt very vulnerable and then i realized how vulnerable people are to getting shot and stuff I mean, it's still a nightmare. It's a nightmare what's happening in this country with the guns. But, but uh, um, yeah, I got. I can watch that kind of stuff now. I found that clip of you doing "Dream About You" on Letterman in '92, and he said it was your network debut. Is that possible? That was your first time playing on network TV. Hey, I wasn't going to uh, argue with him, okay? But it wasn't my network debut. Okay, I didn't think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to sit out there like no, no. I mean, I mean, I, could, I, I wasn't even really, uh, you know, going to say anything. But uh, my network debut was on the uh, Late Show with uh, Joan Rivers, but Franklin and Jay was the host, and I was on with Harry Dean Stanton and me were on, 
and I played Intella Hotel, and I think it was the first time I ever played Intella Hotel. It was live on acoustic guitar solo in 19, maybe 88 or 87. Yeah. Very early on. And so that was the first time I was ever on network TV. I think. I don't know if the Plimpsolls were ever on network TV, and that seems like possible that they might have been too, but I, I can't remember. It just about knocked me out when Husker Du played the Joan Rivers show. It was so weird and so cool. It was a great show, yeah. It was yeah. a great show. Yeah, I was hanging out a lot with Harry Dean Stanton at the time. We were hanging out playing a lot of guitar, and so he got the call to go down there and do it, and he got me onto it too, and so we went down together. Was he a pretty good player? Yeah. Yeah, he was excellent at what he did. You know, He approached music like an actor, and that, what that means is he would, uh, he would do songs over and over again. Like he liked to pick, you know, and he'd call me up. He used to like to stay up late at night too. Hey, man, let's, let's play, you know. And so we'd go over there, you know, in the middle of the fucking night, you know, and then, uh, but he would want to play the same songs like over and over and over again. Like he'd just be trying to get him down, you know, getting down his role. And, and so it was weird, you know, but uh, it was interesting. He was, uh, you know, I don't know. He wasn't, he wasn't like a real uh, fluid, like a musician, musician, but he definitely had like a spirit that he brought to it that was pretty far out. He was a really interesting guy to talk to. And he told me a lot of really important things. <laughs> But he, but he was far out, yeah. Did you guys maintain a friendship? Uh, you know, after I, I hung out with him a bunch, I'm trying to remember how it all went. I knew Doug Som a little bit too, and then one night, uh, one night they called me up. It was I, I was married, and I had little children. I had a little baby, you know. And those guys called me up, and they were out rocking out in some hotel room out out in the valley somewhere in Los Angeles, and they went, come on, man, come on out, man. We're, like, having a blast out here, man. Come on. And, like, I go, you know what, guys? I, I, I got, like, a little kid here, and I'm taking care of the kids, and uh, I can't make it, you know. And uh, I couldn't, you know. My life changed, and I wasn't just going to be, like, the all-night, you know, rock and roller all the time because I, I was taking care of my daughter, Leah, you know. And uh, that's what I did that night. So, you know, I missed some of the partying, but, you know, I'm glad I did. You know, Leah just made my new video. <laughs> she's, like, a really great artist, you know, and uh, she's a great kid. And, like, you know, I mean, there's nothing that, there's nothing better than, uh, you know, your relationship with your kids, you know. I love Harry and, and Harry Dean, and Doug Som was, like, just an amazingly great guy. But but uh, at some point in there, I I, I I, when I was still going on the road, and I was still doing stuff, but I wasn't like just running around the middle of the night way, the way I'd been. That has all the makings of one of those nights that you might not live to tell about. I mean, those guys were pretty wild, weren't they? Yeah, they were. <laughs> they, they both were. You know, Doug was a super cool guy. Though. He was really fun to hang out with. And, you know, they were interesting people. It's still staggeringly cool to think that you and Tommy Keem were on the same label at the same time, and a major label at that. Did you know Tommy at all? Just met him maybe once or twice. Um, I think I met him over at uh, Maxwell's in, the, in uh, Hoboken. Uh, maybe we played a gig together over there or something. He was a nice guy, but I, I never knew him well. Great guitar player. Yeah, he was good. I remember right when I was working with T-Bone uh, Burnett on my first album, he, he made a record with Tommy Keen around that time. I saw Tommy play guitar with uh, Westerberg, and... Um, you know, mid nineties or something. And it was fantastic. But Westberg is one of those guys where I think like, you know, he kind of vanished. And I know it sounds very selfish, but you know, I wish he was still around making music. Um, because it'd be kind of fun to have a relationship with his art as he gets older. But uh, he's kind of, he's kind of uh, dropped off the face of the earth. Did Paul Westerberg really vanish? Kind of. He went on the road a few times. You know, I don't know. There's all different ways of doing things. You know, he got like a big publishing advance and he had a couple of big moments and he got a lot of money. Who knows, you know, how that affects you. Uh, you know, I haven't really had that experience. Um, he's another guy I met back in those days. I remember working with him. I, I opened shows solo for the replacements and I was drunk and, and Paul was sober during this period. And uh, it was a real different period. <laughs> and uh, But I really loved them. I saw him at the Roxy when they were, when he was straight, man, they were so good during this period. I don't think the whole band was, but he was. And it was just killer, man, at the Roxy. We did a number of shows there. And uh, 
but I, you know, I don't know. Whatever people decide to do, I mean, he's you know, if he had something to say, I guess he'd be up saying it. You know, I like, I feel driven to keep playing. I love, you know, it's my, it's just my calling. You know, I play on the road a lot and I write a lot of songs. You know, I, I don't know what he does, but I do know he went on a couple of tours. You know, he had a band for a while. I, I, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Um, when you couldn't go on the road during the pandemic, was that was there moments of existential crisis where it's like, how am I putting groceries on the table? Like, were you a little freaked out about that? Or, or? oh yeah, <laughs> I was. But you know, different things happened, so it all worked out. Um, I can't. You know, I, different things happened. They made a film. One thing that happened was a film was made about me during that period. Uh, it was made, filmed right up to the start of the pandemic and then it came together during the pandemic. And so that was interesting. And then I, um, I can't go into the whole thing, but there was publishing and a number of different things that happened that got me through the pandemic. And then, you know, I'm, um, you know, different things happen. I can't remember what it was. I did a couple of these podcasts where people watch it for with other people. And, mm. You know, mostly uh, I couldn't play gigs, so yeah, it was a little bit of a thing. But I, I was, I was okay. I had an, I had two out. Al- I've made two albums over the pandemic. Uh, one for uh, Bandaloop and one for uh, Sunset Boulevard Records. So I was pretty prolific during the pandemic. And the Midnight Broadcast is one of my best records, but I don't think anybody's ever really heard it. But uh, it's a real trippy record. T-Bone loves it. A lot of people told me that T-Bone yelled at me, that's like, you made a great record. I go, what are you talking about? The one you made on the Nagra. The Nagra is like a little re- uh, recording machine. We made the album on the Nagra. It was, it was the thing that was done, made, it's like a Polish uh, tape recorder that was made in the 60s for recording voices and movies. And I made the whole album on the Nagra. And um, T-Bone appreciated that. And we recorded it in a church. So there's no electronic effects. It was all done in a church um, where the echo was controlled by the, by opening and closing the doors at the back of the church. And we had some people playing on it. Uh, and it's a great record with a DJ. There's uh, Ross Johnson from Al Chilton Band and from Tev Falco. He's the DJ. And it's like the, it recreates a late night driving experience while you're listening to like a weird radio show. And... Uh, so that's what the midnight broadcast is. And then I made this new album on the piano, you know. But as far as, like, was there existential uh, dread about it? You know, not so much. I was, t- I, you know, I got taken care of. You know. Took care of business and I was all right, you know. Was there a reluctance to do to do the movie? The movie seems like it's not invasive, but it seems like it's quite personal. And was there ever initial, initially, like, a reluctance where you went, eh, I'm not sure I want to do that? Or were you always on board? No, I was nervous about it. It was weird, you know. I mean, I went... You know, I lived 64, 65 years of my life without having a movie made about me, so I, I didn't really need one. And uh, But I liked the guys. You know, it happened. I was up on the road up in New Mexico with my friend Frank Drennan, and we were driving up there, and the phone rings, and it's this movie director, Fred Parnes. Hey, Peter, this is Fred Parnes, and we'd like to make a movie, you know. And so they came down and met me at um, a gig in uh, Berkeley, and they actually filmed that night. And... Uh, and then we, they decided to do the movie about me, and, and uh, yeah, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Uh, you wonder, like, what, what's this going to be like? Like, what's this? You know, I watched all his movies. They were good. He's a good filmmaker, and he did a good job on it. It's not exactly the movie I would have made, because I, you know, but he made a great movie that gets across to um, people that aren't just in the music business, but all people seem to sort of relate to it. So he's a very accomplished film filmmaker. And uh, Fred Parnes. So he did a good job. And that's going to be out in late May. And the, the arc of it is something that it, it, that's a, you were happy with the way it came out. Yeah. I mean, uh, people seem to really like it. Um, it has a lot of music in it. And they took me into a studio at Sunset Sound. And we recorded with a band uh, in Hollywood with uh, uh, and at Sunset Sound. I recorded with musicians. And they so that was an investment they made to make, get some really great recordings, and it was pretty cool, and it looked good too. So that was cool. And then they got like a you know a live gig at McCabe's, you know, with a big band with you know all these guys. I forget Van Dyke Parks, I think, is in it. I can't wow. remember right at the moment, but maybe he's not in it. But I think he is. He is in it. Well, I don't know. Ben Harper's definitely in it, and uh, um, the late Don Heffington's on drums, and there's a whole scene like that. And then. Uh, uh, they go back and they even have footage of me playing on the street back in 1973. They have like fine film stock of me 
I was in a movie called Night Shift when I was 19. Uh, as a street musician, they came down and did a documentary about street music, and I was in it. So they showed some you know, brief clips of that, you know. When you got to San Francisco in 73, you were a young man. I mean, you were a teenager. And you'd traveled a long way to get west. You went from east to west, which is a really brave thing to do. Um, looking back, do you, do you see it that way? Do you see it as like, wow, I was like a pretty brave guy for, for being so young? It didn't really occur to me. Um, I mean, it does now a little bit, but like at the time, um, I just had a desire to get out west. I wanted to leave Buffalo. I hated what was going on with me in Buffalo. My life was all messed up. And I just wanted to go start over again on the streets in San Francisco. And so I did. And uh, the freedom and the, you know, the ability to just completely focus on music. I lived on the streets, so I didn't pay any rent for years. I just, like, wandered around. I lived in different, you know, weird ways. And, you know, uh, you know, I just played music all the time. And it was it's what enabled me to be who I am, you know. Um, and so it would have taken more. I mean, I... I could. It was. It was the easier way to go, as opposed to like staying in Buffalo and like. There was nothing there that I was going to do that I loved as much as what I did. I just had to get to California. I love California, and I, I will continue to live. Noise, a bunch of old men who 
when you got to California, did it did it match up with the romantic vision of what you thought it would be? Definitely. <laughs> you know, I love California. You know, when I first came out, I set up on the street. Like my heroes were like all those like '60s bands from California. You know, my heroes were as blues singers and poets, but they was also I loved all those '60s bands, Moby's Grape, and you know all this stuff. So I'm out on the street, and like the first day I'm playing on the street, maybe the second day. I think it was the first time I played on the street um, in Fisherman's Wharf. This guy comes up, and I meet him, and he asked me if maybe I could join his band. It's Mike Wilhelm from the Charlatans. He was the he, he was the guy that Jerry Garcia said was his favorite guitar player, and in San Francisco in the sixties. And he, he taught me how to play guitar. You know, he, he became like my mentor for years, man. And, uh, uh, he ended up being in the flame and groovies and he had his own band and we played, we played folk gigs together and, and, uh, he became a good friend of mine. He's gone now, but he was a, a super great inspiration, Mike Wilhelm. And I, some of the songs I do, you know, I learned from him. Uh, I learned how to play with a thumb pick from him and he got me, he taught, he, you know, I knew about Robert Johnson, but he really turned me on to all this different blues music. He'd learned how to play from uh, Brownie McGee. And Brownie had sat with him and played quite a bit. And Mike had also sat up all night with Mance Lipscomb and played and learned some songs. And so he had like a lot of firsthand knowledge besides just being part of that whole San Francisco uh, legendary, you know, psychedelic movement. So he was, um, you know, right when I first got out here, I got r right to the heart of Saturday night. I met Wilhelm, you know, and, and I was like, <laughs> Fantastic, you know. Were your uh, were your parents concerned about your exodus from New York to California? I didn't talk to them much for a while. We were we had sort of a difficult relationship, and so the, I think maybe the first year or so, I didn't even talk to them. And then uh, we started to talk. Me and my father were at war, you know, in certain ways, but in other ways, he'd given me a lot. They gave me a lot as in terms of um, music in the house and. Um, uh, different things you know my mother loved uh you know she was into different things you know poetry and art you know, she was a painter and everything so my father wasn't you know he was kind of a rough hewn kind of guy <laughs> you know but my mother was cool and like my father was cool too you know and so I, they, they gave me a lot but we had, we had a big falling out and so I, it got patched up over time I imagine they were very, you know, they were probably really concerned, you know, what the hell happened to him. I know my father said to my mother, he supposedly said to her, he'll surface. He'll either surface or he won't. That's what they said. <laughs> and by the time I surfaced, I was in the nerves. And uh, we were on a national tour. And they came out and saw the nerves play at the opening of the big punk rock club in uh, um, Toronto. They drove up from Buffalo and heard us play at the Crash and Burn Club. And uh, it was fantastic, you know. That's kind of a cool, a cool story. Yeah. So yeah, it was cool, and uh, me and my father ended up being really close before he was gone. You know, my mother too, and like they were, you know, they were great. But like you know, there was a lot of problems. Like because I wanted to kick out on my own, they want they didn't want me to do what I did. But you got to do what you got to do. It's really disappointing how much San Francisco has changed. Um, back in the eighties, there were artists everywhere. And uh, now it, it kind of feels like the artists have been kicked out. Well, when I was here in the 70s, it was even more so like that. I mean, you'd see Ferlin Getty everywhere and Corso, Gregory Corso would be there. And I played on the street with Allen Ginsberg. He came out and sang with us on the street, you know. And, wow. Uh, you know, uh, and then, you know, you'd see, the, you know, Wilhelm and all these other rock and rollers. Dan Hicks was around all the time. and You know, you'd see different guys from the different bands, you know. But... um Elvin Bishop, you know, was always on Cran Avenue, you know. And, uh, a lot of these guys were hanging around all the time. But um, New Arma and all those guys. But uh, the city has been economically destroyed in many ways. And so artists have fled, you know. Uh, there's still a whole society of artists here. I, I still I still see Chuck Prophet, Tom Heyman, and uh, yeah, uh, you know I see a lot. You know, uh, uh, a lot of the Bruce Coburn lives here, and uh, uh, there's a lot of writers here, and uh, you know, so there's there's a community, uh, there's an underground community of people like you know, the, you know, Mark Appel and these different people that I see that uh, do a lot of things, you know, but uh, you know, Jesse Di Natale lives here, and. Uh, uh, you know, Ramo Jack just lives right up to the north, and uh, you know, there's still there's still a, a big vibe here, but it is different. Yeah, I know Jonathan Richmond was in San Francisco for a long time, 
Do you know him well? We're friends. I've, I I don't know if I know him pretty well. I don't know if that's possible. But yeah, he's. Uh, I do see him. He performed with me up in. Listen, uh, I was up in. Uh, well, I, I was out on the road. He was coming to some shows when I would go go to this one place, and he would come out and play guitar with me and sing and stuff. So I, I love Jonathan. He's the greatest, you know. How would you describe him as a guitar player? Great. He's great, he's a, right? He's a, yeah, he's a great. You know what he said to me? He goes, uh, he goes, I'll play a song with you if you want. You know, I go, yeah, that'd be great. He goes, I don't want to, you know, hurt your uh, drama, but you know, I go, no, it'd be good. You know, and then he said, uh, I said, what should we play? He goes, I don't care, play anything. I go, well, we don't really know what don't you know. He goes, it doesn't matter, man. Play what anything you want, I'll be able to play. So I just pull out some songs and play it on. He played great. <laughs> he's the greatest man. He's he's like a jazz guy or something. You know, he's so underrated as a guitar player and it, and it feels like you know there's nothing that stylistically he can't play it does sort of seem like that he's unusual yeah he's so he's he's so in the moment is what he is and and uh he's so plugged into um the present he lives right in this now period you know he's right here with you right now so he's with you and he's with the moment he's with the audience right now now and so he's just plugged in, and then he like just feels it and tunes in, and he plays something, and it's always right. You know? From what you've observed, is the Jonathan character a character, or is that who he is? No, I guess that's who he is. You know? Yeah. He's pretty much the same off stage as on stage. You know? The tagline on punk rock was always that it was less about skill and more about inspiration. But I look at the, you know, the L.A. scene that you were a part of, and there were tons of good players who were actually – like excellent musicians. Yeah. Well, you know, John Doe was pretty good, but you know who was good was Billy Zoom, you know? And, yeah. Uh, and, but Don, and DJ Bonebreak was like just an incredible player. And um, the Blasters, Phil Alvin was like, you know, a master player, you know? And Dave learned, you know, and like they all learned. But, but uh, you know, the thing about all those bands is like most of the people in those bands grew up like I did playing at dances when you were like, you know, 14 years old, you know? Like I... I I started out playing coffee houses and dances when I was 14 back in Buffalo. And you, I played a lot of that kind of stuff. And um, you played music for like teenagers to dance, you know, and you had to be good. Uh, you had to keep the groove going and stuff. You know, you could, it wasn't just like expressing, uh, you know, some crazy mood you were in. It was about like playing the laying down stuff for people that were going to enjoy it. So um, to dance. And so I think most people came from that. And then being on the street for me, but everybody had their own different experience playing in nightclubs or playing, you know, I, I you know, got spent so much time playing, you know, it took, you know, it's that old thing about 10,000 hours or whatever, you know, like that that guy came up with, you know, it's like you spend a lot of time doing something, you get it down to you're more, more comfortable doing that than anything, you know? And uh, so that's what it was like. And uh, all those bands came out of that. Phil came out of years of playing with, uh, you know, Billy Zoom came out of years of playing with Gene Vincent, and so did DJ Mulbright playing years of playing with bands. He was in the Eyes and a lot of other bands, and I think those weren't his first bands. He could play like you know all that Beefheart kind of stuff, and like so, um, you know, Don Heppington, you know, who's in the in the Lone Justice, he played jazz. His mother would drop him off in South Central to, at jazz clubs when he was like you know fourteen, you know, and so everybody came up through mu live music. There was a lot of live music to come up through, and you had to play. Everything was live music back then, so so that those bands all got really strong that way. So maybe it was the British bands that didn't have that American background of playing dances. Maybe it was more like the British punk bands weren't as accomplished musically. Maybe I don't know. Um, punk did mean that people that weren't that accomplished could get into a band and make a record and make a statement, and so. Um, but a lot of those people were really good. I mean, you know, the Clash were really that drummer and the Clash was a super great player and strummer and those guys could really, you know, the bass player was pretty new to it. A lot of times bass players were the people that like really were the um learners, you know. Uh Mick Jones knew a lot about music. The Sex Pistols, I don't know, they sure sounded good to me. Uh, they seemed like they could really play. Some of the bands like, you know, uh you know, they put together a sound and they had a statement and they could do it. And that was sort of the punk legend, but um you know, the Go-Go's or somebody like that, you know, they had, like, the drummer could really play, and the guitar player that wrote all the songs came up through uh, classical music. Mm. and was really great. And then uh, Kathy Valentine came up through blues bands in Texas, you know, playing with a lot of different people there, you know. So 
you know, everybody uh, had to learn it somewhere, you know. But but even like you know, even in a real basic, I don't know, you know the the. I mean, the Nerves had to learn how to play, like, like as a band. Like when we were when we were the Nerves and starting out, like we couldn't really. We were just. I was learning the bass, and we didn't really know how to have a band that great. And so we had to work at it a lot. And we rehearsed a lot, man. We rehearsed uh, hours on end, um, trying to get the grooves together, you know. And so then finally we got that real simple, you know, hanging on the telephone thing, going. You know, uh, it was after hours and hours of like, you know, honing it. Um, we worked really hard at it, you know. So there's that too, you know. So even if you have something real simple and primitive like the nerves, it still had to be honed, uh, right? You know, you know. So, yeah. What about the germs? They couldn't play. They couldn't play. Yeah, they really couldn't. But they had like such intense attitude, and they did have like I'm saying they made a statement. Uh, maybe the one guy could play a little bit. Uh, the Pat. One that, yeah, Pat Smear, but. Uh, None of the other people could play. Don Bowles could play a little bit, um, the drummer. And uh, um, I played. I saw some of their first gigs. It was all attitude. I mean, attitude is what you do to replace, you know, being able to play. You know, right. But uh, but I mean, the Stooges could play, and they had attitude. <laughs> you know, I mean, they. I don't know. If, some people thought they couldn't play, but they were like just mammoth. Or the Ramones, you know. I remember sitting around. I was on tour of the Ramones in '77, and we were in the dressing room in Chicago or Milwaukee or something. And the club owner goes, "Can the Nerves and the Ramones? Can you guys all go out there and jam tonight?" And we all did, the room went silent, and then Duty goes, "We don't know how to jam." You <laughs> 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 know, we didn't. You know, not really. You know, I mean, I might have been able to jam a little bit, but like, we're not going to go out and jam with the room, you know, like that. That's not what it was about. It was about putting it together, really getting it tight, and then taking it out in like, you know, two minute songs that rock the house. You know. Did you ever run into Darby Crash at all? Yeah, sure. I booked that first gig when they, when they their, their very first gig. I, I was the one that talked to Darby all the time. He was called Bobby Pin back in those days, and and uh, he used to call me on the phone. And we would talk into the night. Um, I haven't seen him. I ran into him once at Oaky Dog. Once the Germs were like a really big band, he was really drunk. But I ran into him. You know, that was the last I saw him. I was at the last the last gig I saw him alive. Was uh, when I, I think when I wrote a million miles away, right after that gig. Wow. But uh, yeah, way back then. But uh, yeah, I used to talk to him. He, you know, he he really you know wanted to, you know, he really wanted to get it going on a band, be on the show. And I was booking that punk rock show, so like we like we booked them, we booked all the bands into this place called the Punk Rock Invasion or the Punk Rock Palace, and then Punk Palace, and and then we. Uh, we booked a few of the shows. We got the Weirdos, the Germs, the Zeros, the Dills. Um, X wasn't even playing yet. And uh, we booked all those shows, and then we went out on the road opening for the Ramones and turned it all over to those people. The night we left was the night that the Germs played their first gig. I saw their gig, and then we went out and got in the car and drove off into the, on tour. <laughs> what was your take on Jeffrey Lee Pierce? He was one of my best friends at one point, you know. I loved him. Um, I met him in uh, very early on, like at uh, Fast Freddy's house. It was a big party over there, and we, we immediately hit it off. And I gave him a copy of the Nerves record that I had. We sat around, played guitar a little bit, stuff at this party, and then um, kind of you know talked about records and stuff. And then I gave him my record. That apparently he he the story is you know what happened was he uh, put it on a tape for. Um, Debbie and Chris from Blondie to listen to on the, as they flew to Australia, and that's why Blondie ended up doing a million miles. Uh, do, end up doing uh, hanging on the telephone oh. was because Jeffrey was the president of the Blondie fan club, and uh, Kid Congo was the president, I think, of the Ramones fan club, and so they were like the president of these fan clubs. And uh, I loved Jeffrey, and then years later, like we we wrote songs together and we had a band together for a little while, and. Um, and then he moved to England. I used to see him after that, and then I saw him again in the period before, you know, when he came back to L.A., we hung out a lot. I used to go over to his house a lot. We'd, he'd give me books, or I'd give him books. We used to read, he used to read a lot. We listened to a lot of jazz records. We played horns together. Um, he came in, one day he said, meet me at the bar. You know, there's a bar we used to hang out at, and he said, meet me not at the bar, like, in, you know, half an hour. 
So I got down to this bar, this was 1984, and he shows up and he's got a trumpet and a saxophone that he bought at a, at a you know, yard sale or something. <laughs> so he goes, uh, which one do you want? You want trumpet or saxophone? You want to be Miles or do you want to be Charlie Parker? I go, well, I used to play, uh, I used to play saxophone, you know, when I was in high school, in junior high school, so I'll play the saxophone. So he took the trumpet and then we just started wailing in this bar like till they got mad at us, threw us out. But like we were, so I, you know, I'm playing the saxophone, really getting back into it and stuff. And then I, um, Jeffrey's playing at the music machine on uh, Friday night, you know. And so I go down there to see the show and he comes out and he's playing with a gun club and they're doing the whole thing. He's wearing these shades. He looks real cool and everything. Like The band just, keep, he drops the, puts the guitar down and he pulls out the trumpet. <laughs> and like he's going to play trumpet. He just started playing like three days ago. And then he just blows like a few notes, like Miles would, you know, like just like a, like, and people are like, wow, man, I didn't know Jeffrey knew how to play trumpet. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, he, you know, the guy's a genius, you know, but he was he had this genius for like just taking something that you only knew a little bit of and uh, making it uh, work, you know, <laughs> really funny. But he looked real cool doing it, you know. It was very cool. He 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 was very creative, really, you know, really brilliant guy, you know. Those gun club records to me also don't sound dated. I, I can't place them on any timeline at all. Yeah, they're great. I love that one, uh, Miami, I think is my favorite one. I like the first one too. Yeah, they're great. I love them. Yeah, it's, yeah those are incredible records. And, they, and yeah. I still am discovering new things about, about those songs that even after 30, 40 years, it's unbelievable. Like what? I mean, I think like just like a little lyrical turn that I'm more of a lyrics guy. It's like a, little, a lyrical turn I missed. Um, I don't because the music for me is always secondary. The lyrics are always always first because I'm a writer and that's I'm not a musician. Um, he was a very clever lyricist. You know, he gave me this book one time. Uh, it might it's around here somewhere. I don't know what I did with it. It's it's here somewhere and it, um, it was the book, and it was Paul Oliver's History of the Blues. I've got it here somewhere. I don't know where it is this big red book you know and uh, it's got pictures of all the different blues guys and it's got a million blues lyrics and jeffrey would go through this book and this is before i knew anybody that did anything like this and he would like just lift lyrics wholesale out of this book and stare because whenever i don't know what to do i just take them right out of this book and just put them right in their song no kidding <laughs> oh yeah man you know there's a million you go through the book he gave me the book when he went to uh he goes here you can have the book I was telling T-Bone about that back in, when I was working with T-Bone, because that had just happened when I was working with T-Bone. I, I just had the book from Jeffrey. I go, yeah, Jeffrey gave me this book. The, he called it the book, you know? And like we were calling it the book. And then T-Bone goes, well, Dylan has this thing called the book too. And uh, Dylan's the book was, uh, uh, I also have this one around here somewhere, is the uh, Lomax Folk Music of North America. And if you go through that, there's like a ton of lyrics in Bob Dylan songs in that. But I, I used to go to the library when I was a kid and read that book. I would just, every day I would go to the library and like I would just always get it out and just sit there and stare at it uh, and go through it. And like I even, you know, had bands that did songs out of that book. Um, when I was 14, we had a band and we did a, When I Was a Cowboy out on the Western Range, the Lead Belly song. And we did that like a Doug Psalm number, and uh, like like Tex-Mex, and boom, uh, And so I've recorded that. I finally recorded that on my uh, on the this the, the Midnight Broadcast album. There's that version we did. We did when I was a cowboy. Like that way I did it when I was 14 on that record. And uh, I got that out of the book. And there's a lot of great songs. And you see a lot of other bands from the 60s, like the Young Bloods, and a lot of other people got songs out of the, that the book out of the book but t-bone told me that um among he told me a lot of stuff that, that he'd heard but like that was that was a good thing to, to know about that i mean to feel comfortable like you know now people are like a lot more real realizing the extent of that you know about um that music none of nothing's completely original people take whole pieces of things and work rework them to make something new you know it also suggests that Jeffrey had a kind of almost like an academic discipline to songwriting where he could take pieces and, and lift them and put them in other places. 
he was just one of those guys that uh, knew what was cool and he could take things and like he could do a, a he could just do like a, a, a version of things, throw it together and make something cool, you know. I've always been kind of like that too, uh, in my own way. Like I could always like just take whatever's going on and make a thing and like be able to do it. And so um, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's what what you said. I forget what you said. Like a scholastic. What did you say? Like it's like an almost like an academic discipline. It's not an academic discipline. No. <laughs> no. It's it's a creative like flight of the mind, you know. But you would agree that his his instincts were great. Yes, they were brilliant. He had incredible instincts. He knew what was cool. That's what I mean. Like he just knew how he wanted it to look, man. And uh, he made, he knew, you know he had like a why not me kind of attitude, and he was just you know totally uh, he you know he really had something to say, you know, and he uh, just said it. Are you pretty good at maintaining friendships? Like I heard this bootleg with Marshall Crenshaw, and he he did Steel Strings. And he went, this is a song by my friend Peter Case, and it was this is like back in nineteen ninety or so. Are you still in touch with a lot of people? That are, do you maintain friendships in the music industry? Some and some not. You know, I haven't talked to Marshall for a long time. I like him, but I haven't. We didn't really keep up. But uh, it was cool that he cut those songs, and you know, we were friends. I I remember staying at his house after some big gig in New York. I mean, we were pals back then, but we didn't really keep up. You know. Um, I have some people I've kept up with years. I'm still friends with all the guys I played with in my bands when I was in junior high school. And like, we still play, we're playing in Buffalo in, uh, in whatever next month is March. We're going to play, uh, we play at the sportsman's tavern. I play with my, the guys I played in bands with back. We've been doing this for years. Like I'm still in touch with all those guys. I've kept those friendships going for years, you know, you know, um, yeah, I mean, there's a, I have a lot of old friends, you know, uh, whether or not they're like the people from the bands. I still, um, I'm trying to remember who I'm friends. I've been friends with John Doe. I'm still friends with Dave Alvin. Um, I, I try to be friends with Phil Alvin. I don't see him much, but uh, I like him a lot. And, um, uh, you know, uh, there's other people too. I can't remember. But, yeah, there's a lot of people all over the country I've been friends with for years and years and years. It's hard to remember everything, you know, but but uh, there's a whole web of people you meet when you're in music and they're your friends. You know? During the pandemic, were, were when obviously when tensions were high, were you commiserating with friends in the music business? Were you having phone calls going like, what are we going to do? And sort of just consoling each other and trying to strategize? Yeah, definitely. You know, well, just trying to keep our heads straight. Um, yeah, definitely. There were people I was talking to all the time. What was your take on Nirvana? Were you um, Were you a fan of Cobain? I appreciated him. I wasn't like a really big fan, but um, I really super appreciated it. And um, I felt how powerful he was. It's funny because right when he died, like I felt like the landscape really shifted uh, for rock and roll. Like it really, it really, that's when the Plimsolls reformed again after he was gone all of a sudden. We felt like, oh, I'm going to start rocking again. But, you know, uh, I wasn't like a, a super big fan, but I, I, I dig what he was doing. I used to have a tape of him in Rome, or him playing live in Rome with Nirvana that was so heavy. It was so unhinged and great. Um, I used to have these two tapes. I don't know what happened to them when I moved. I lost both of them. One was the the Rolling Stones at Hammersmith Odeon in 1973 or 72. And it was just the wildest tape. It was just the wildest gig I've ever heard in my life. It was just sounded like they were just blowing the roof off the place. It was scary. And then Nirvana was the same thing, like the show in Rome, you know. I think that was just a few weeks before he passed away. So it was pretty shocking. I think it really is shocking, like, how many people died after being on Geffen Records, you know. How many stars they lost over there. They lost Elliot Smith and him, you know. You know, it's, I guess there's only two, but... It is shocking, you know, that, that the, both, the, both those people were people that were super creative but really needed more help than a hit record. And, um, you know. Yeah, I wonder if the hit record was actually the, like, the worst thing that could have happened in some ways for them. For Nirvana, maybe, yeah. 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 They just wanted to be on the road playing their music, you know. But uh, they needed, they could have used a few more years of just being out on the road, getting their heads together. But you appreciated the heaviness and that sort of like the raw intensity of that bootleg that you had. Yes. Yeah, I yeah, thought it was fantastic. Cool. You know, it was like, you know, it was like listening to a live Bitches Brew uh, record too. I mean, it was just an incredible outpouring of emotion. 
when I saw Elliot Smith play on the Oscars, I thought, oh, this is, he looked very vulnerable. It was hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I heard some stories. I didn't, I met him, you know, and I knew him. And uh, when I first met him, uh, he seemed really vulnerable. I, when I first met him, we were hanging out with a bunch of people behind this club and, and everybody was talking, hey, Elliot, what's going on? I didn't realize who he was. And, uh, he just sort of seemed like a, like a street guy or something, you know. Like there were a lot of people hanging around, and I liked him a lot, but I didn't really, I didn't realize he was Elliot Smith, you know. And uh, I liked his work a lot. Well, Peter, I like your work a lot, and I um I really appreciate you talking to me. Uh, you're uh, a fascinating fellow with a lot of great stories, and uh, I want you to come back on and and tell some more. But um, I'm really appreciative that you did this, and I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Well, thanks for talking, man. I enjoyed talking to you too. It was, you seem really interested in all this stuff, and that's always great to talk to people that are you know care about what you're talking about. Let's do it again. All right. Cool. Let's do it. There you go, Peter Case. I really enjoyed that conversation. Very cool. Uh, his new album is a stunner. You're going to love it. Pick it up. Dr. Moan. PeterCase.com is the landing point for all things Peter Case. Go there. Have a look around. Buy the album. Buy the old albums. Buy the Plimsolls albums. The Nerves albums. There's a lot of Peter Case work, so immerse yourself. Um, but start with Dr. Moan and move backwards from there. Do a little Peter Case reverse engineering. You'll be happy that you did. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor, or you can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or just feel free to email me. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. And don't forget to check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. We would really appreciate it. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Have You Ever Been in Trouble from Peter Case's new album, Dr. Moan. Enjoy it, and thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Have you ever been in trouble? Do you remember how it feels? Are you living in a bubble, caught between the wheels? Tonight you feel the danger rising on the wind. Tearing out your jacket, ripping at your skin. Have you ever been in trouble? You slip by somehow. Have you ever been in trouble? The kind you're in right now Where there's freedom down the bandit avenue Do you see someone coming? Or something you can't do? Upstairs room, the loser cries and wins and sorely grieves. How do you believe? Asking you receive.
Have you ever been abandoned? Did you ever run at night? The streets are maze beneath your feet, your heart concealed in fright. You pray in desperation, left the Holy Ghost. I'm coming down the alley just like a mega dose. Have you ever been in trouble? But you slip by somehow. Have you ever been in trouble? The kind you're in right now. Where there's freedom down the banded avenue. You see someone come in. A something you can do. There's one thing I know for sure is real. The minute you surrender, the wounds begin to heal. It's your reprieve.